Matthew chapter 1, we're going to be in this very familiar passage. I'm really glad that we're looking at this passage uh, in mid-January and not uh, Christmas time like we usually do. Uh, It feels good to me to kind of take the tinsel off of this a little bit and try and understand it the way that, that Matthew wants us to understand it. Uh, Welcome again if you're here for the first time. Uh, Maybe you're here visiting church perhaps for the first time. It's great to see you. It's great to have you with us. Um, If there's anything that I say tonight from uh, this passage of scripture that you want to discuss afterwards, be more than happy to do that. Uh, And during these evening services, we have been looking through this gospel, Matthew's gospel. And it's Matthew's account of the life of and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. However, I was saying last week uh, as we began this that we mustn't view Matthew as a simple biography uh, because although these are historical facts that Matthew records for us, it's more a sermon. He is teaching us using events that he himself witnessed as a disciple of Jesus. And what we saw last week was that the big thing that Matthew wants to wants us to get from his gospel, is this idea that Jesus is God's long-promised king who has come to bless the nations. So prior to Jesus' arrival, God had specific intervention in the nation of Israel, which is recorded for us in this first half of our Bibles in the Old Testament. And all that God did there was to lay the groundwork for the moment that happened at the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah. He promised to send a great king who would rule forever, who would save the world. And that list of names you can see in uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17, that we looked at last week, we saw that that's more than just a list of names. It's a testimony that charts and records for us that promise through this historic bloodline until it arrived at uh, the moment that Jesus Christ was born. Now, as we come to what Matthew records for us about Jesus' birth and the infancy of Jesus, I think the big question that he is wanting to answer and wanting to persuade us of is this. What kind of king did God promise in the Old Testament? And how do we see Jesus fulfill that? What was the, what was the kind of king, the kind of uh, king that was promised Thousands of years ago in that Old Testament scripture. And how did Jesus fulfill that? That is the big question that this passage addresses. Now I want to just picture in your mind's eye Matthew sitting in his study. He has just been given a great commission by Jesus. Which he records for us at the end of his gospel. He is told that he has to go out and make disciples of all the nations. And teach them what Jesus taught him. So he sits in his study and he's getting ready to write his gospel. He's got a big pot of coffee. uh, And in front of him, as well as the facts that he himself has gathered from being with Jesus, he has all these scrolls that encompass the Old Testament scripture. Scrolls that, that would date back thousands of years before Jesus came. And as he comes to thinking about starting his gospel... And writing about what kind of king God had promised in these scrolls, in this Old Testament scripture. He notices how everything was so wonderfully fulfilled right from the very beginning of Jesus' humanity. 
And this is how he writes his section. You may have noticed that, that as we read through this, frequently Matthew talks about uh, the scriptures being fulfilled. He says quite often, this was to fulfill what the Lord said or what the prophets said or, or what the scriptures said. Because all the Old Testament was pushing towards Jesus Christ. That's why these sections are just pregnant with Old Testament allusions and quotations. Now as we look at this, I, I want to raise two questions with you. Firstly, do you understand really what it means to say that Jesus is your king? So if you're a Christian, do you really understand what it means to say that Jesus is your king? And I don't just mean intellectually, uh, or just as an imparting of information, but do you understand it in a way that it radically changes your life and your view on reality? Second question, do you really trust the Bible? Now I think if we're honest... There are times where we would answer those questions in the negative. Times where we, we don't really understand who Jesus is. And times where we might not say this, but we struggle to trust the Bible. Well, this passage here in Matthew, Matthew's Gospel is going to really help us to, to help that. To help us know Jesus better and to trust the Bible more. So Matthew is sitting there with his Old Testament scrolls. And in them he sees three big things about what kind of king was promised and how Jesus fulfills those promises. You can see I've got an outline on your service sheet that should help you as we look through this passage together. And the first thing we see is that Jesus is a divine king who has come to save. That was the promise that God would send a divine king who has come to save. Now, after we read the, the genealogy of Jesus, we kind of got this long list of names, we might be tempted to think that Jesus is just another man. Uh, Matthew wants us to be very clear right from the onset of his gospel. The birth of Jesus is not like anything else in human history. This is not a natural birth. Something supernatural happened at the arrival of Jesus because this is no mere man. Look at how he begins, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So, see that, is not, this is not a myth. Uh, this is history. The birth of Jesus Christ took place, place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So the conception of Jesus is divine. It happens by God's Holy Spirit, not by man. The, the Holy Spirit that is mentioned way back at the start of the Bible, the book of Genesis, has been there when God created the world, is here when God creates the humanity of Christ. And of course, Joseph in this situation, what does he think? Well, he thinks what any other man would think in this situation, that Mary's cheated on him. And that she slept with someone else. So we're told he resolves to divorce her. Um, he doesn't want to put her to shame. So he'll do it quietly. But he can't believe that his wife has not slept with another man. I mean it's astounding. And you know for Matthew's original readers. This would have been just as unbelievable. Uh, as it would be for us today. We mustn't think that, that when Matthew wrote this. These were just primitive people who would believe anything. It was Unbelievable! It's supernatural. It was unbelievable to Joseph, which is why he doesn't believe Mary and he wants to divorce her quietly. 
But Mary is not lying. And Joseph himself, he is told the truth by God that the baby in Mary's womb is from God. And whilst it may seem unbelievable, it nevertheless, if we're thinking about this king that God had promised, it makes absolute perfect sense that Jesus would be born this way. Because this king cannot be like any other human being. He has to be a human, but he has to be divine as well. And if you read your Old Testament scriptures that that Matthew would have had in front of him as he's writing this gospel, you'd see something else. That this king that Israel had all throughout the Old Testament, well, there was only one king. And there was only one saviour. And it's God himself. So the king that God promises to send has to be God. That's why his birth is so unique. It's unique so that we don't confuse it with that other list of names in verse 1 to 17. Because Jesus is not like them. He is the end. He is the fulfilment. His arrival is the moment when God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, came into human history as a baby. And his birth was prophesied ages ago. So Matthew's sitting in the study. He picks up his Isaiah scroll. Written over 700 years before he started writing this gospel. And he was probably reading Isaiah 7 uh, to 9. About this child that would be born. That clearly is no mere human child. Because he is called Wonderful Counselor. Prince of Peace. Everlasting Father. Almighty God. And as he reads that. He remembers a section which he records for us here in verse 23. This is from Isaiah chapter 7. Verse 22, let's read it. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew helpfully translates what Emmanuel means in Hebrew, which means God with us. So Jesus is God with us. God in the flesh. The king that that God promised is Emmanuel. And Jesus has to be God. Not just because it was promised and because God is Israel's only king. But because of what he came to do. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. It's one of the most important verses in tonight's text. It explains everything. It tells us the main purpose of Jesus' life. It tells us what he came to do. It tells us what he accomplished. He came to save. To save us all. Not from disease. Not from war. Not from violence or oppression. Or from tyrants. But from something far worse. Because all of that stuff that that we hate is just symptomatic of a deeper rooted problem. He came to save us from our sins. And in the Bible, it's only God who can save us from our sins. It's the great story that runs throughout the Bible. We need to be saved. We need a saviour. And the story of humanity in the Bible is the story of how we don't like God's rules, so we created our own. How we rejected God's authority and so we put ourselves in his place. And all of us are ultimately like that. That's why this narrative is so important to us because we are sinners. We think that we are the boss. We are fundamentally flawed. We are twisted and we are self-worshippers. 
And we often justify ourselves and and delude ourselves saying, well, we're, we're not that bad. But we don't take God's categories for sin seriously. And we kind of, what we do is we create our own categories that make us look good. And we compare ourselves to others. But the truth is that we are sinful people in desperate need of a saviour. Because all of us here, the biggest problem we face in our lives is not our finance. And it's not our relationships. And it's not our health. However serious those things may be, it's the fact that we are sinful people and God is angry at our sin. We often try and justify ourselves. I was reading this this week. It's from the, uh, the Nuremberg Trials of the Nazis. And this is what one interpreter said of that event. He said, these men were not evidently monsters. They also knew good from bad, right from wrong. When I asked Rudolf Hess, commander of Auschwitz, whether he was ever tempted to steal from the inmates... He responded by saying, what kind of man do you think I am? You see, even the man in charge of the most evil act in history thought he was a good man. And we've got to ask ourselves, if we don't believe we're sinners, is our self-judgment so right? Don't be confused. This room is full of messed up, messed up people. And I say that so often because I want us to never forget that. Because as soon as we forget that, we forget the fact that we need a saviour. Oh boy, if you knew the stuff that I had thought and said and done this past month. But that's why Jesus came. To rescue us. To rescue us from something that we cannot save ourselves from. Ourselves. Our sin. He came to remove that sin. He came to bring us back to God. And there is no salvation outside of Jesus. And we must not forget that that is fundamentally who Jesus, our King, is. And so if you're feeling guilty with sin, that you feel, I can't come near God. Or if you don't find yourself having any gratitude towards God. Then the main problem is you've forgotten that Jesus is your Savior. Emmanuel came to us so that we could be permanently with him. Isn't that the most amazing truth? That's God's king. And as Matthew sits in his study and he's got these Old Testament scrolls out, he remembers that, well, God had always promised to do that. God had always promised that he himself would come and rescue his people. He would have read a passage like Isaiah 43, 11, which says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no saviour. And here we have Emmanuel, God with us. And the certainty of his salvation brings us the certainty of his eternal presence. You know, that commission that Matthew got at the end of his, that he records for us at the end of his gospel. Right before Jesus sent him out to proclaim his salvation to the world. He said this to the apostles. I am with you always to the very end of the age. And it's certain because he is a saviour who has secured salvation. Second thing we see about what kind of king was promised and how Jesus fulfilled that is that Jesus was a shepherding king who will be worshipped by the world. We see a shepherding king who will be worshipped by the world. Now verse 1 to 12 of chapter 2. It records for us the visit of the magi or the wise men to Jesus. Now we need to get this nativity scene. 
famous nativity scene, we need to push that out of our heads. Uh, and I'm sorry to do that, but we need to look at what actually is said here in the text. There is not three of them. They were not kings. They probably weren't from the Orient. They are magi, which is um, ancient, kind of ancient equivalent of scientists or astronomers. Uh, and they did not visit Jesus at the same time as the shepherds. They didn't visit him in the stable. We see here that they visited him in a house. Jesus was probably a toddler uh, when these kings arrived. I like to think there was probably 300 of them. I mean, why not? They had three gifts, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there was three of them. Uh, there could have been hundreds, maybe thousands, that came to visit Jesus. But notice that in, in this narrative that Matthew wants to highlight two key aspects of Jesus' identity that are all throughout his Old Testament scrolls in his study. Firstly, this narrative really brings out the kingly nature of Jesus. So there's kind of a tension that is built up between Herod and Jesus. Herod is frequently called here Herod the king, but it's Jesus who is called king of the Jews in verse 2. And the question that is raised then is, well, who is the real king? And so Matthew records for us how Herod's officials, uh, his scribes and chief priests, knew where God's king was going to be born because of what was written by the prophet Micah. So in his study, Matthew takes out his Micah scroll, again written over 700 years before Jesus, and records for us what Micah prophesied about the coming king, the true king of God. Verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the king who is born in Bethlehem will be the one who rules God's people and who will shepherd them. And that kind of shepherding language is really unusual to to describe a king as a shepherd. But again, it's another prominent theme that we see running throughout the Bible. Israel's greatest king, King David, he started off life as a shepherd. And shepherding is always in the Bible synonymous with leadership. And it's a great image because it shows us the kind of king that Jesus is, the kind of king that was promised. A shepherd shows us someone who who cares intimately for the individual need of his sheep. Who searches out for the lost who wander and stray. Who protects the flock from harm. Who leads his people beside quiet and still waters, as Psalm 23 says. And in the Old Testament it is clear that God himself, just as being the one true king and the one true saviour, is also the one true shepherd. So God's king with us will be our shepherd. But the shepherding rule of Jesus doesn't just extend to Israel alone. It's meant for the whole world. And if you were to read on in in Micah 5, you would read this about Jesus. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely. For his greatness will reach to the very ends of the earth. And I know that's on Matthew's mind as he's writing this account for us. Because look at the second aspect of Jesus' identity we see here. He brings in the nations. Do you see these wise men? They're not part of Israel. They're they're the outsiders that are brought in. And notice why they came in verse 2. They want to see Jesus. Why? So that we can worship him. 
They are led by the star to worship God's king. Even his own people don't accept him. Verse 3, all of Jerusalem is troubled by the arrival of Jesus. You see, the Jews may have known where the king was going to be born, but it's the Gentiles who are the first to come in and worship him. And I love their response when they encounter Jesus. Look at what happens. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. In Greek, that is the most emphatic way you could describe their joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. What does it look like to say that Jesus is your king? And to follow him if he's your king? Rejoice with exceedingly great joy. And you fall down and you worship. And you want to give the best you can to him. There is no begrudging submission. There is no forceful bowing of the knee here. This is what it's like to worship Jesus. Why? Because he is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the one true ruler of the world. Our Savior and our Shepherd. The King for all the nations. And you know this is really one of the most radical things about Christianity. It is never localized. Right from its very beginning. It was about bringing in the world together. And it did something that that no other ancient worldview ever did. It united people from the most radically different backgrounds. And it brought them together as one in worship. That was God's plan all throughout the Bible. Again, Matthew's got his Old Testament scrolls. He sees it as he's looking at Jesus' life. That God had always planned this to, to create a new humanity where divisions are healed and sinners come together as one to worship Jesus. Matthew's own mission that he was given by Jesus at the end of his gospel was to go out and to make disciples of all the nations. Third thing we see here. Persecuted king who fulfills God's purposes. That's what was promised and that's what we see in Jesus. A persecuted king who fulfills God's purposes. Now if God's going to send a king, a ruler, who really is God himself. And he's going to save us from that great, great problem. The greatest problem. He'd expect the world to rejoice like the wise men. And to warmly welcome and embrace that. But right from the onset, we see the arrival and the arrival of Jesus, something very key about his identity. He evokes immense hostility and division. He has done and he will always do right to the end of time. In verse 13 to 18, Herod does not like the idea of a king uh, coming and potentially ruining his rule. He thinks that he's the king of the Jews. He hates this idea of having a king because he's in charge. So in order to try and eradicate God's promise, he plans a genocide in which he orders the death of all the male children in this region. And from what we know of history, this is exactly the kind of person Herod was. Well known for murdering his own family even. In fact, Caesar Augustus said this of Herod, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. 
And so Joseph leaves, he takes Mary and Jesus to Egypt. And all this was done to fulfill what Matthew says in verse 15. was recorded by the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I will call my son. But I think Matthew puts this story in here as well because it's strikingly similar to another story in one of his Old Testament scrolls, which he's definitely alluding to. It's the story of the the birth of Moses in the book of Exodus, where Moses was born in Egypt, chosen by God to rescue his people. And yet, as he was born, the ruling Pharaoh ordered that all the Hebrew males under the age of two be executed. And if you were to read that story, as I'm sure Matthew was doing in his study, you would see that despite the overwhelming opposition and hostility, God's plans cannot be stopped. And opposition, rejection, and hostility are are some of the key hallmarks, actually, of God's chosen king that we see all throughout the Bible. He is a king who will be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as the prophet Isaiah says. And I think that explains the the very last verse of our passage as well, which uh, Matthew concludes with and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene now that's a really interesting verse because that is, you'll notice it's not in quotations because there is no quote like that in the Old Testament but Nazareth for the people of Matthew's time was associated I guess as the, the kind of armpit of Israel um, a, a place for the outcasts kind of like Dundee um, but I can say that because I'm from Dundee and nobody else is allowed to say that. Uh, and he's saying like, well, that's what this king is like. The promised Messiah would be the outcast, the despised one, marginalized. Why? Why is that happening to God's king? Why was that part of this promise? Why do people despise the kingly rule of Jesus? There could be many reasons But I think one of the main reasons is because, like Herod, we want to be in charge. We don't like a king over our lives. And so people rebel against God's king, whether it just be through indifference and ignoring him or through downright hostility. And yet none of that, none of that throws God off course. And if we know this about Jesus... That this is what he is like, right from the very beginning. A king who is persecuted on the outskirts, on the outside. Then it helps us to trust God when when we feel just marginalised or on the fringes of society. Because that's the king that we follow. So, of course, that's what's going to happen to his followers. But God uses and used all of that to bring about his purposes. You see, how is it that Jesus can save us from sin? What is it about Jesus that that united the nations and that brought people in? Ultimately, it's not his birth, but it's his death. And Matthew is just laying the groundwork for that. That's why it's not really a biography, because most of Matthew's time is given over to the death of Jesus. It wouldn't be a very good biography if you're just talking a lot about the death of that person. But that is the key event because it's on the cross as Jesus dies that he takes the punishment that we deserve for our sins so that we could be free from them. 
And so that we could be with God forever. It's there that we see that, that all people, no matter where they are from, are equally sinners and therefore all equally forgiven. So the message of salvation is for the world. That's what our king did for us. And that's what our king is like. A king who who was crowned with thorns, not with gold. A king who was clothed in purple, not out of worship, but out of mockery and ridicule. A king who was lifted up, not on a throne, but on a cross. Persecuted and suffering. That is God's chosen Messiah. And he did it all so that he could save us. So let me close by coming back to those two big questions. Do you really know, firstly, what it is to live with Jesus as your king? Do you understand how, how messed up you really are and the great lengths that Jesus went to save you? Do you marvel with gratitude and awe at his grace and the mercy that he has shown you that was promised so long ago Do you find yourself filled with with overwhelming joy like the wise men when you come to worship this king? Don't you want to to share this good news with the world so that everyone can can be brought in and be saved and experience this great shepherding care that Jesus has for his people? Or are we starting to lose sight of who Jesus is? Is he becoming more like an imaginary friend than my king and my saviour? Are we becoming cold and indifferent to him? And that's quite common, I think, for people who follow Jesus to feel that. But how do we stop that? And how do we live in a way that reflects the fact that we really do know him? Well, I think Matthew's answer is, is quite simple. Read your Bible. Isn't that what he's been doing? Throughout this narrative that he's been recording for us. There is not a portion of scripture that does not illuminate Christ. And every aspect of his character. You see this book is is not about us. It's not the information that, that we need. It's a book that is fundamentally about Jesus. And because he is an infinite well of knowledge and of wisdom and of grace and of love, you can never tire from learning more about him. You never get to the end of knowing Jesus. So have confidence when you read and listen to God's word that you will encounter the king of kings because that's how you get to know him. And the more you get to know him, the more you'll rejoice with exceedingly great joy and worship him. That leads to our second question. Do we trust the Bible and the promises that are contained within the Bible? You see, don't you see how, how trustworthy this is? This passage gives us immense confidence in, in the scripture. Confidence that, that God is always true to his word. Even in the face of evil and genocide. Even if it takes hundreds, sometimes thousands of years to fulfill those promises. They were fulfilled. It happened. And they will always be fulfilled. So when God promises that if we trust him, he will save us. That means that nothing can take us out of his loving arms. When Jesus says at the end of Matthew's gospel that we are to go and make disciples of all the nations. That means that it will happen. 
We can be confident. We can be certain. Jesus will do it. Evangelism does work. And if we do face challenges in doing that and talking about Jesus, we can be confident that that's normal because that's also promised that we will suffer if we follow this Christ. But God works and God promises that he is with us always. Emmanuel, to the very end of the age, the shepherd king will bring in the nations and he will save and no evil or tyrants or genocide or anything else will be able to thwart his plans of salvation. There is nothing in this world that can give you that kind of security. Nothing. So read the scripture and read the great promises that we see contained within it. We can trust a God who keeps his word so faithfully and a king who bleeds for his people. Jesus is our certainty, our saviour, our shepherd, and our great king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great story that Matthew records for us. Thank you that as he sought to write this gospel and record what he had learned from you, And what he saw in the scriptures. Thank you Lord that we see how it all fits so perfectly well together. That you are God who is faithful. That what you promised would happen did happen. Thank you that Jesus came. Thank you that he's our saviour. Help us not to, to miss that. To miss the fact that every day we need your mercy. And we need your forgiveness. We need this our saviour. Thank you that he is God with us. And because he has removed our sin, we can be with you now and always. Thank you that he is our great shepherd who guides us, who leads us, who cares for us, who feeds us and sustains us. Thank you that he will bring in the nations, that he breaks down all the barriers that we put up and he unites us all as one. Thank you that even though he is a king who suffered, His suffering shows your great purposes and plans. Help us to trust him in times where we feel struggled or times where we feel on the edge or on the periphery of things. Thank you that we have such a king, the great king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.